I hope you hold your Bible open to the book of Isaiah, as Wayne read from chapter 7 just a minute ago. And we will certainly revisit not only that passage, but a few other ones as well along the time of our consideration tonight. As you probably have already noticed, this will be installment number three in our series of lessons on the prophetical book of Isaiah. Still hopeful that these lessons will be a reminder to us of a number of truths from the Old Testament era. But tonight, I believe we'll each be impressed with the viewpoint taken with regard to information in the New Testament. Now, you and I have known well that the Old Testament books, the prophetical books especially, often made statements of prophecy, foretelling the future in a rather notable way. And in fact, that's going to be true tonight in particular, and that's why I somewhat chose to bundle this set of chapters together under the banner of our study tonight, Isaiah chapter, or rather installment number three. This introductory slide will be one that again sets before us perhaps a new reminder of one of the features about the books of prophecy which will be very important to keep in mind. Now these prophetical books, just like all the books of the Bible, were from heaven. God wrote them. They contained messages that were to be beneficial for the people of that day. But yet when it came to prophecies and things foretelling perhaps distant events in the future, they of course have been blessings to all of us rather directly throughout the ages that have passed ever since. In fact, in Amos chapter 3 verse 7, God expressly said, I do nothing but what I tell my prophets. And so when God revealed to the prophets what He was about to do, they often couched their messages to the people, reminding them of these things. Later in Hosea 12, verse 10, that minor prophet pointed out where God again said, I will do nothing but what I tell my prophets. No wonder in Ezekiel 3, verse 4, Ezekiel was directly told, You go and speak with my words unto them. What, I, what Ezekiel was speaking was not merely his opinion. It was what God gave him to say. With all of that in mind, what did God give Isaiah to say? Now, tonight's study will be one taken from, again, a few chapters. And we'll not pick every point out of each chapter, obviously. But I thought that we would simply make consideration of this. Let's start in chapter 6. You might recall that we ended our lesson last Sunday evening with chapter number 5. And at that time, we highlighted some of the features, or at least some lessons in that, that would be helpful for us. Chapter number 6 will be no less direct in terms of some of what it asks us to, to, to in fact, appreciate. Chapter 6 contains the call of Isaiah. In other words, the time when the God of heaven called him and put him into the office of a prophet. Perhaps that's the thing for which we know best, Isaiah chapter 6. On the slide, as you can well tell, that idea will take a rather notable effort in this chapter. In fact, you might go ahead and note, beginning in verse 2, Above it stood the seraphims. Isaiah was given a vision. In that vision, he saw these seraphims. Each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face. With twain he covered his feet. And with twain he did fly. What a sight that must have been. For God to grant a vision to Isaiah. And these seraphims are going to say something. Did you know what they said? Verse number 3. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. 
The whole earth is full of His glory. So one of these seraphims spoke to another, and that was the message that they had in communication. They were lauding and applauding and appreciating, if you please, the holiness of God. I might remind each of us that's quoted and applied in the book of Revelation. And it's one of the messages that the redeemed are going to sing through all the ages of time, pronouncing the holiness of God. That should be a reminder to us, those seraphims had it right. They set before those who were in a position to hear the absolute greatness and the absolute holiness of God. You might notice in verse number 5, Isaiah's immediate reaction. Upon hearing and witnessing these seraphims, Isaiah's first understanding was that he was unworthy. I'm not worthy to be here in this position. I'm not worthy to be in the midst of this holiness and this greatness, and I am unfit to be positioned like this. I would submit that all of us, when we truly realize our sin, this is the first thing that comes to our mind too. I'm not worthy of the blood of Christ. I'm not worthy of the sacrifice that He made, and I'm sure not worthy of what God has done for me. But He did it. And He calls me to accept that offer of salvation and that offer of redemption. And Isaiah's first reaction, Woe is me, verse 5, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of, un of unclean lips, for mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah recognized the special place in which he was. He had been blessed to witness this absolute nature of the glory of God and the seraphims that heralded it. And he knew that he himself was certainly not fit. In verses 6, 7, and 8, Isaiah was thus cleansed and purified. One of those seraphims, verse number 6, took a live coal in his hand and touched the lips of Isaiah with it. And might you and I note the statement that was stated in verse 7, This hath touched thy lips. Thine iniquity is taken away. Thy sin is purged. You and I realize that we have a blessing in that regard too. When we emerge from these watery graves of baptism, we too have our sins forgiven. We too have our life purged from the guilt of sin. And just as Isaiah felt, he was then commissioned and ready to proceed for the work to which God had called him, the work of a prophet. It is with that stated, verse number 8 will perhaps occupy our attention for a moment. Also I heard the voice of the Lord. So now it isn't just the seraphims, it's the Lord speaking and saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? That's a great question, isn't it? So here's God asking, Who am I going to send to carry out the duty and the work that needs to be done? Who will I send, who will I send to accomplish this? That verse ends by noting Isaiah's answer. One of the songs in our book is patterned after this. We sing it from time to time. Here am I, send me. Isaiah felt the burden of the characteristic of the moment. He'd been cleansed of his sin, redeemed from the character of the moment, and in that position when God needed a worker, when He needed one to carry out the mission of that which was needful to be done, Isaiah said, I'm here, send me. 
And so when we sing that song, Hear My, Send Me, that isn't just a quote from, I, from the days of Isaiah. It's a charge and challenge to all of us that we too might take the mantle of effort in the Lord's kingdom. Hear my Lord, send me. But at that point, the chapter doesn't close. There are a number of verses which follow it, and that will in fact occupy us for at least the next observation of the evening. Allow me to read beginning in verse 9. And he said, Go and tell this people. So when Isaiah said, Hear him, I send me, God said, I've got a message for you. You go and tell the people this. Hear ye indeed, but understand not. See ye indeed, but perceive not. Make the heart of this people fat, and make their ears heavy, and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and convert and be healed. Now maybe that initial reflection of what God told Isaiah to say is a bit troubling. He said, this is what you tell them. You hear, but you don't understand. You see, but you don't perceive. Your heart does not fathom, does not put into appreciation that which you've heard. In some ways, that's no compliment. Here was God's people. They had been blessed with the prophets. They'd been blessed with those who set forth to them the message of the God of heaven. It was they whom they had the oracles of God, Romans 4 verse 3. But yet in the midst of that, God says, Isaiah, this is what I want you to tell them. You preach to them with plainness, and you preach to them the message of the Word of God. But the fact is, you're going to need to tell them this as a part of it. Why do you hear, but you don't understand? Why do you appear to see, but you don't perceive? It's because their heart didn't want to. Did you notice the language of verse number 10? Make the heart of this people fat. They only wanted to hear what they wanted to hear. And so, though they may sit and listen to Isaiah, and though they may sit and listen to some of the other prophets, the message didn't sink in. I would invite all of us to notice, it was this passage that Jesus quoted when He was asked in the New Testament, Why do you teach in parables? Do you recall that scene? I've asked you to note it in Luke, verse, in Luke chapter 8. There was a time when someone came to the Lord and said, Why do you teach this people in parables? Jesus quoted this verse. He taught in parables so that those who really weren't interested in learning, they would, you see, not trouble the truth of those who were. Wasn't it true that the parables Jesus taught, they were heavenly messages but couched in earthly language? A sower went forth to sow all right, and some of that seed fell on wayside soil, and some of it fell upon stony ground, and some of it fell on thorny ground, some of it in good ground. The people could hear that and understand easily about sowing seed. They knew all about it. But the spiritual meaning behind it just passed most of them. They didn't perceive the message because their heart didn't want to see it. On that slide, the question is going to be asked of you and me. And it's the title I've given it, Do We Want to Know? The Word of God will be such that you can see things in it. And many in the religious world today see what they want to see in it. But they miss the truth. 
they miss what truly God has said because they don't rightly divide it. You and I could fall into that trap too. It's easy to do, isn't it? Just to do what granddad and great-grandma always did. Jesus, you see, as well as Isaiah, pointed out that. You've got to have an earnestness for the truth. In fact, did you notice in verse 11 what Isaiah said next? After hearing what God said, Isaiah said, Lord, how long? How long am I supposed to preach like this? Let's look at God's answer. And he answered, verse 11, until the cities be wasted, without inhabited, and the houses without man, and the land be utterly desolate. And the Lord hath removed men far away, and there be a great forsaking in the midst of the land. God said, you preach it when they like it, and you preach it when they don't. You preach it when it's convenient, and you preach it when it's not. You preach it when some will want to hear, and even when others don't. And did you notice, he's already said, this people are not going to respond, and they're going to be hauled off into captivity. You preach it until then. There's a lesson in that for you and me. God's Word's not to be changed. Oh, men may like to twist it and pervert it and make it sound different so that it's more palatable and we can draw big crowds. Well, God said to Isaiah, you don't ever change the message. Doesn't matter if there's only a few there to hear it. Now, you and I hope that there's a lot to hear it. That's what we like because we know it's for their best interest eternally. But even if they don't like to hear it, we're never going to change the message because we can't. That's what God told Isaiah. As you and I close that slide, doesn't that teach us something like what Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4 2? Preach the word. Be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, that they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned into fables. Now Paul told that to Timothy in the heart of the first century. You and I aren't the least bit surprised that that message is still needful and it's still so very important. As you, all, as you certainly have seen with me, Isaiah chapter 6 has been something that has been tremendously interesting to us because of its practicality. Let's turn over to chapter 7 and see what else is there. It may well be that chapter 7 of Isaiah is one of the best known verses or contains one of the best known verses in the whole book. And it's going to be the verse that shall capture our attention at least for a moment. Brother Wayne read this verse for us a moment ago. In chapter 7, you may note verse 1 as a bit of an introduction, or at least a bit of historical interest. Verse number 1 reads, And it came to pass in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that reason the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, went up toward Jerusalem to war against it, but could not prevail against it. There was going to come a time somewhat further into the future than this when other nations would come against Jerusalem and they would be successful in taking it. But the time wasn't right yet. Here, the inspired writer informs us there were some forces that arrayed themselves against Jerusalem, but at least at this point they could not take it. You may notice it took place in the days of Ahaz. 
On the slide, I've invited each of us to notice he was the twelfth king of Judah. The Bible reminds us much about him. He reigned a total of 16 years, and the biblical record of him is not promising. In fact, the text says he did that which was not right in the sight of God. He was an evil ruler. He was one who encouraged other things besides the service of the God of heaven. We are told in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 1, that Isaiah labored during the days of Ahaz. In fact, it would be during those days when Isaiah attempted to direct the people's attention away from what Ahaz taught and toward what was the truth. Furthermore, you'll notice that in chapter 1, verses following, as this Ahaz is mentioned, we notice the following things mentioned. Turn over just a few verses in that chapter and look at verse 10. Moreover, the Lord spake again unto Ahaz, saying, Ask thee a sign of the Lord thy God. Ask it either in the depth or in the height above. At this point, the God of heaven gave Ahaz the opportunity. You ask of me a sign, God said, and I'll do it. As an appreciation of my promise to be with you and your people, so long as you will turn unto me. Ahaz's response is very odd. In the next verse it says, Ahaz said, I will not ask, neither will I tempt the Lord. Although the man is heralded as a wicked man in the Old Testament, when given the opportunity to ask of God a sign, Ahaz wouldn't all, he would not ask of one. He refused. Therein lies the next two verses. He said, Hear ye now, O house of David, is it a small thing for you to weary men, but will you weary my God also? God, in essence, says, You'll ask things of other people, but you won't ask me? That verse was no compliment, you see, to Ahaz. Now God says this to him in verse 14. Therefore the Lord Himself shall give you a sign. God says, if you won't ask, I'll give you one. Here's what it is. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. And immediately we're confronted with the matchless majesty of this proclamation. God said to Ahaz, here's the sign. A virgin will conceive and bear a son, and his name will be Emmanuel. Much could be said. In fact, we could easily use the entire remainder of our service tonight only unpacking that little passage. But yet with it, I think a few obvious things are easily to be seen on the slide. First of all, obviously, this is completely unbiological. A woman who never would know a man would become pregnant and bear a son. Now you and I realize this is not normal, it is not usual, it is not the confines of ordinary biology. And yet God said, here is what will transpire. You may notice, God didn't tell Ahaz expressly when it would happen. You and I, from the perspective of our position, know it was going to be centuries later before it would happen. It was not in the days of Ahaz. You'll notice the next thing on the slide, though, would be this. There has been a question raised and asked 
throughout the years about this, and in some ways it's been prompted by some of the translations of the Word of God. I've asked you to notice the Revised Standard Version's presentation of this verse. In that translation of the Bible, this verse reads, Behold, a young woman shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now we all know there's nothing unusual about a young woman getting pregnant. There's nothing at all unusual. It happens multitudes of times every day. May I say to you, that kind of translation has corrupted this passage terribly. This was supposed to be an unusual, recognizable sign to the children of David. A woman who had never known a man was going to get pregnant. And she was going to bear a son. And note further who the son was going to be. Emmanuel, which literally means God with us. This was going to be a supernatural birth for a supernatural being. The God of heaven was going to be incarnate on earth. You and I know that's what it meant because later in Matthew chapter 1, on the very occasion when Mary was to become pregnant, you might recall that the angel shared with Joseph information about this verse, and this verse was quoted verbatim in Matthew 1.25. May we never take away the beauty and the remarkable character of the Incarnation. How that God took the form of man, but it was not a natural biological birth. It was a supernatural birth. Mary had never known a man. The Holy Spirit came on her, Luke 1, verses 31 to 35, and she became pregnant with a one that would be called Emmanuel. That never ceases to be remarkable. It's one of the most unusual events to ever take place upon this planet. As you and I close that slide, isn't it amazing then to notice how over 700 years before it happened... God informed Ahaz that it was going to be this way. I might point out this wasn't the only Old Testament passage foretelling this remarkable event. Isn't it somewhat interesting the prophet Jeremiah had somewhat to say of it as well? In that remarkable text of Jeremiah 31, verse number 22, at least at this point we've seen two amazing passages from Isaiah, both of which pointed at least in part to the blessings of the New Testament. Let's look at the descriptions of Christ found in Isaiah chapter 9. Would you move forward a couple of chapters with me? And as you and I learn something else about Jesus, this might be a good time to remind ourselves that the book of Isaiah is often called the Messianic book. We can perhaps see why. He had much to say about the Messiah. In chapter number 9, Allow me to start reading in verse number 2. The people that walked in darkness shall have seen a great light. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them hath the light shined. Thou hast multiplied the nation, and not increased the joy. They joy before thee according to the joy in harvest, and his men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For thou hast broken the yoke of his burden, and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor as in the day of Midian. For every battle of the warrior is with confused noise, and garments rolled in blood, but this shall be with burning and fuel of fire. First, there has been a notable affliction. The people at that time were not all in the best of circumstances. We've already seen the evil reign of Ahaz. Things weren't always so good. 
Why don't we turn to a better record? Look at the next verse. Beginning in verse 6, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform it. Now, though the chapter began with a rather negative observation of the affliction that they faced, suddenly in verse 6, the context changes dramatically. A baby is going to be born. The government will be on his shoulders. A foretelling of an incredible event. Go ahead and revisit with me some of the descriptions of this baby. His name shall be called Wonderful. His name will be called Counselor. His name will be called the Mighty God. His name will be called the Everlasting Father. His name will be called the Prince of Peace. There isn't any doubt who we're talking about. Isaiah, one more time, was given message to share with the people at some point in the future, the Messiah is coming. God's going to be on the earth. You realize this baby is really going to be the Prince of Peace. This young one is going to be the Everlasting Father. Furthermore, He's going to be the Mighty God. There are some through the ages who not only have had a hard time accepting the fact that God came in the flesh... They have even been very resistant to it entirely. You and I realize, though, the Word of God sets it forth so plainly. That babe that was born in Bethlehem, the one to whom Mary gave birth, he was God in the flesh. John chapter 1 reminds us, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was with God in the beginning. Later in verse 14 of the same chapter, that same one who is under discussion is said, We've seen His glory, the glory of the only begotten God of heaven. God was here. Thus, no wonder when Jesus could say, If you have seen Me, you have seen the Father. John 14, 9. That's a remarkable truth. There was a period of time of a little over... 33 years it would seem, when one walked upon this planet as God. He showed us what it's like to see the Father. He set before us what it's like to have commitment to the truth, to have an earnestness to teach men about the message of redemption, and to ultimately humble himself to the point of going to a cross so that others might be saved. This son that was here said to be such that he was going to be born. Note again the next verse, verse 7, of the increase of his government, there shall be no end. Jesus has a government. That means he has a kingdom. That kingdom is the church, and the church exists on all seven continents. It exists everywhere upon earth. Of the increase of his government, there shall be no end. Some of the greatest kingdoms that have ever existed have fallen far short of this. Rome was a great empire, but it didn't include all the continents. 
The Grecian Empire was mighty, but it didn't include anywhere near all the land places upon earth. And yet, of the increase of the Lord's government, there would be no end. Is it any wonder that when you and I see that which verses like this foretell, you can only sense the excitement that must have been in the heart of the ancient Jews? They knew what verses like this taught. No wonder they looked for somebody to deliver them. Admittedly, they thought it was going to be an earthly kingdom. Someone to help them beat the Romans up. But it was never said literally to be that. In fact, you may notice here it was going to be God in the flesh. But it said that He was going to labor with judgment and justice. Our Savior, you see, taught judgment and justice so thoroughly, didn't He? As you and I close that particular discussion, these descriptions of Christ are only so beautiful. One last matter in our lesson tonight will be an appreciation that we'll draw from chapter 10. As you turn with me to the next chapter, we encounter face to face a rather chilling scene on the one hand, but a rather challenging one on, on yet another. Beginning in verse number 5, Isaiah chapter 10 reads like this, O Assyrian, the rod of mine anger, and the staff in their hand is mine indignation. I will send him against an hypocritical nation, and against the people of my wrath will I give him a charge, to take the spoil, and to take the prey, and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. How be it, he meaneth not so, Neither doth his heart think so, but it is in his heart to destroy and cut off nations, not a few. As you and I pause at that point, you and I might now take the language and appreciate in it some of what I have asked you to notice on that slide. Mention is made of the Assyrian Empire. This isn't the last time we'll encounter them, but it surely is presented in a way that's to the people of God at that time, no doubt it was puzzling. God says in verse 5, those Assyrians that you people hate so much, remember He was talking to these Israelites, they didn't like the Assyrians. They didn't appreciate the way they did things because the Assyrians were cruel and ruthless people. They conquered other nations, they took them over, they took their land, and they had already begun to mount their forces and direct them toward Israel. So God's people didn't think too highly of the Assyrians. Might you and I remember the Assyrian people were heathen people. They didn't have the Ten Commandments. They didn't have the Law of Moses. The Law of Moses wasn't ever given to them. It is in that connection, though, that we hear God say this in Isaiah 10, verse 5, O Assyrian, the rod of mine anger, so the Assyrians were a rod in the hand of God. The staff in their hand is mine indignation. They're carrying out my work. Verse 6, God says, I will send them, those are the Assyrians, against an hypocritical nation. Who's that? Israel. God says, I'm going to send Assyria to conquer you people, Israel. And He went on to say this, Against the people of my wrath will I give a charge. Those Assyrians are doing it because I have sent them. Those heathen people, I sent them. Not only that, 
Notice with me carefully in verses 9 and 10. Is not Calno as Carchemish? Is not Hamath as Arpid? Is not Samaria as Damascus? As my hand hath found the kingdoms of the idols, and whose graven images did excel them of Jerusalem and of Samaria, shall I not, as I have done unto Samaria and her idols, so do to Jerusalem and her idols? God said that destruction that will come upon Samaria, I did that too. That destruction that came upon Damascus, I did that too. In Jerusalem, I'm going to do it to you too. Now, perhaps it's interesting to notice in verse 7, I left that one out. Revisit it with me. Howbeit he, that's the Assyrians, meaneth not so. Neither does his heart think so. In other words, I planted the thought within it. I have raised the interests of the Assyrians and directed them your way, Israel. They're coming after you, and I have sent them. Don't you know that had to be a bit of a disturbing message for the people who should have been God's people and who should have honored Him to hear the one whom they adored say, You idolaters people are a people who've turned away from me, and I'm sending the enemy your way. Oh, how we must keep in mind, our God controls the nations. When Assyria raised her interest in Israel, oh, it wasn't arbitrary. God raised their attention in that direction. He said that He did. And of course, that attention is not going to be swayed. Ultimately, Assyria is going to make its way into the Palestinian area, and they are going to wreak havoc among the nations. Israel is going to have to suffer because of it. Our God rules in the kingdoms of men, to borrow the wording verbatim of Daniel 4.25. Maybe it's in that connection that some of the remaining thoughts on that slide will be yours as well as mine tonight. When Israel didn't do God's will, they were in the crosshairs of punishment. God directly told them that in 2 Kings 17, beginning in verse 6. In other words, when the time came that the Assyrians overran them, they were told the reason why. And this was it. May we never think the United States cannot be defeated. May we never think America is too strong or powerful. Our educational system won't save us. Our military won't save us. Our governmental wisdom won't save us. What it shall take is observations like this. God stated in Psalm 9, verse 17, that any nation that forgets me, I'm going to turn into hell. Now, that's Bible. And oh, how it was appropriate like we did this morning. We prayed unto God in prayer that we as a citizenry and that we amongst our leaders will have an attention toward the truth and turning the mindset of people back to where it needs to be. Israel didn't learn that lesson, sadly. Though the prophets came and told them, they never learned it. Though there were people who urged them, they never learned the lesson. There's still time for America to learn it. Maybe we shall. We can pray that we shall. And with that, chapter number 10 draws to at least the last observation we shall make, and we will close our lesson with some comments on conclusion. As we do that, we have now come in the book of Isaiah through at least what we shall note through the first 10 chapters the next few chapters will come before us next time 
And as we look at them, we shall find more lessons for those of that day and some great lessons for us today too. Tonight, it may be that someone in this assembly, upon reflection of your life and heart, realizes that God too has sent messages, and they're messages from the Bible. Maybe you haven't heeded them. Maybe your interests in life have turned elsewhere, and God has been an afterthought at best. You realize that's not going to lead anywhere good. God, you see, is the supreme one. We have noticed if He can bring a virgin to the point where she can deliver a son, can't He take care of the issues of your life and mine? Doesn't He have the wisdom to take care of the issues we face and to forgive our sins and help us live a better life? Sure He does. If this is the God who in fact could direct Isaiah and allow him to see a vision of seraphims like he saw in Isaiah 6, and if he can bring a babe who would rule over a government of which there'd be no end, he can take care of your life and mine. Tonight, if you would wish to acknowledge things and come before others and make acknowledgement of sins known publicly, we would be delighted to assist, to help, to encourage We want you to know that God loves you and that He wants you to be faithful. And we'd like to encourage that in whatever way we can. If tonight we could be of some assistance, we encourage you to let us know the way we can do that while together we stand and while we sing.